um, let me just give you kind of up front before we read the passage. We already read it. We're going to read it again. That doesn't hurt, right? Um, so we're going, to, we're going to read the passage here in a second. But let me give you really quick up front a big idea for today. Okay? So the big idea, the one sentence, the one big idea to kind of hold on to for our time today. And we're going to be coming back to it over and over and over again. And it's a question. It's a question that I want us to be thinking about. Okay? So here's the question. Who is running the show? Who is running the show? And so if you're taking notes, write that really big up top. Who is running the show? If you're not taking notes, memorize it. It's going to come up again and again and again. We're going to see it in our passage. Who is running the show? Who is running the show? So let me read. Here's Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. It says this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter... First say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is God's word. So what's happening here? There's a lot going on, right? A lot going on in this passage. What's happening here? Well, the passage says at the very beginning that Jesus calls together a large group of his followers, 72 of them, and then he sends them out two by two into every place that he's going to go. And so we know that during Jesus' ministry, he was an itinerant preacher. He was a traveling preacher. That's what he did. He went from town to town preaching his message. That was his ministry. And so the way this would work is that these people, these disciples, the 72, he would get them together and two by two, he would send them out to different towns where he was about to go. So they would go and they would prepare everyone for Jesus about to be there. And so they would come in and they would say, hey, they would make connections, get to know people and they'd say, hey, there's this teacher named Jesus and he is coming tomorrow or whenever it is and you should come hear him. So come, see him, hear him, come hear his message. They would go get everyone ready for this. But we're also told, we're also told that they would come in and they would teach the message themselves. So they would teach the message 
And then Jesus would come in right after them, and he would teach that same message. And so that's what I want to focus in on this morning. As, as I said, there's a lot going on in this passage. I can't get in, just for time's sake, for, to every single detail. But I do want us to really focus in here on what this message is that his disciples went and spread, and the message that Jesus spread throughout his ministry. So we're going to look at three different things here. We're going to answer the question, what is the message? What's the message that they went and taught? What's the message that they preached? Then we're going to talk about the message as good news. We see from the passage that the message they taught is good news. And then, finally, we'll see the message as a warning. The message as a warning. And So let me just stop really quick before we talk about it. Let me just pray for us and just, just get our hearts and minds right as we, as we talk about God's Word. So let me pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much just for this church. I thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning. After, after this year, I pray that we'll never take that for granted again, being able to just be together with the church. Thank you, Lord. I pray that as we open your word, I pray that you'll speak through me. I pray that you'll give us all ears to hear. And I pray that, yeah, that you would just speak through me and, and, and give us what we need to hear from your word today, what this church needs to hear. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the 72, the 72 are sent with a message. What is the message? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 9 and verse 11, he says it twice. The message is this. This is what they're to go out and tell. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Because here's the thing. If I'm honest, I don't really get kingdoms, okay? I'm an American, okay? We don't have kingdoms, right? We don't think much about kingdoms. I've seen The Crown on Netflix. I know some stuff about Harry and Meghan. I've been to Magic Kingdom at Disney World. But outside of that, kingdom, that doesn't really register with me. And so every time kingdom comes up in the Bible, I'm like, what in the world is it real? What's it talking about? And it comes up over and over and over again. And so what's being announced here when we say that the kingdom of God is near? Well, to put it as simply as possible, it means this. It means that God is here, God is here, and he has come to reign. God is here, and he has come to reign. A kingdom... A kingdom that comes, a kingdom coming, means that a king is coming. And Jesus is claiming here to be that king. A kingdom coming means a king is coming, and Jesus is claiming to be that king. So to answer our question from earlier that we started with, who is running the show? Jesus is making a claim here. He's running the show, right? He is the one who is running the show. That's the kingdom of God. It's God's reign, okay? It's God's reign. That's the kingdom of God. Well, that leads to another question. Where was this kingdom, right? Where was this kingdom? We're announcing that it's coming near. Well, where was it? Why does it have to come? Why does it have to come? Well, thankfully, the Bible answers this question. Actually, the kingdom, this theme of the kingdom, stretches from the first page of your Bible to the last page of your Bible, and all in the middle, okay? The kingdom shows up over and over and over again, and the first time it shows up is Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, here's verse 26. Here's verse 26. We're told that God creates humans. He creates humans, and then he gives them a job. And here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here's what we know from this. Humans have a role in God's kingdom. 
We are made in God's image, and we are called, it says here, that we are called to have dominion over creation. Now, what's that mean? It means that we are called to rule over it and called to reign over it. We are called to do what kings and queens do, okay? Humans, what we're told here is that humans are created to be kings and queens over creation, which is kind of interesting, right? Just to hear that, that kings, we're made to be kings and queens over creation. That sounds interesting because isn't God the one who rules? God reigns. How can it be that we reign? Well, theologians say that humans are called to be vice regents, okay? We're called to embody his reign. And so they use this word vice regent. Here's the thing. I don't know about you, but I don't know what a vice regent is, okay? Like I've looked it up and I still don't really fully understand what it is because again, I'm an American, right? We don't have vice regents. But here's the thing. Came up with an analogy and I think this has been super helpful for me as I've thought through this and just up front, it's super dumb, okay? It's a dumb analogy, but I think it'll be helpful. You'll be at lunch today talking about how dumb this analogy is, but I think it's gonna help you get it, okay? So here's what I want you to think about. Here's how we're gonna kind of Americanize this idea of humans being vice regents. I want you to think of God's kingdom like a Chick-fil-A franchise, okay? I love Chick-fil-A, so it's, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about it, so this is kind of where I went with it, okay? So I want you to think of God's kingdom as a Chick-fil-A franchise. So in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world, and as the creator, he sets the rules, okay? He sets the rules. He decides how things are going to be. But then he creates humans to rule over his creation. And so let's think of God like the CEO of Chick-fil-A, okay? God is Dan Cathy, okay? So God is the CEO of Chick-fil-A, and he turns a Chick-fil-A franchise over to a man and a woman, and they are given great power to rule and to reign over their franchise. But their job, as people owning this franchise, is to embody the CEO's rule. So they must answer to him, and they must do things his way, right? That makes sense? So they're ruling and reigning over their franchise, but they have to do the things the way the CEO says to do them. Well then, let's picture that a rebel of some sort, someone who hates the CEO, shows up at this Chick-fil-A franchise, and he begins planting seeds of doubt in the minds of this man and woman running this franchise. And he says, you know, there's really no way that your CEO cares all that much about you. I mean, you don't even open on Sundays, right? Like, there's so much money to be made on Sunday. Why would you all close? Okay, that's like, what? there's no way he really cares about you. And so, doubt starts to creep into their minds about whether the CEO actually wants what's best for them. And all of a sudden, they start to do things their own way because the trust gets broken. They open on Sundays, they start selling hamburgers, and it gets even worse. They start saying, you're welcome instead of my pleasure, okay? It just all goes downhill really quick. They all of a sudden start to run things their way. Now again, I, I, I warned you, that's dumb. But it's also, in a way, the storyline of the Bible, okay? It's also the storyline of the Bible, because humans are called to embody God's reign on earth, but what do they do? Instead, they create their own kingdom and run it their way, run it the way they want to run it, a kingdom that's not ruled by God, but instead a kingdom that's ruled by Satan, a kingdom of darkness. And so the rest of the Bible is telling the story of how God's kingdom is coming to earth, 
God's kingdom is coming through earth. Throughout the whole test, Old Testament, there is so much sin and darkness as humans build their own kingdoms. But we're told that God chooses a family, the family of Abraham. And as we read about their story, there are these breadcrumbs throughout the Old Testament that God's kingdom is coming. Thinking about the kingdom in the Old Testament, it kind of reminds me of when Allie was pregnant with our one-year-old son, Knox. And I know that sounds weird, but here's why I say that. Um, When she was pregnant with him, I realized something. Nine months is a long time. Nine months is a long time. And I know that I have no right, as a person who wasn't pregnant, to say that nine months is a long time. But it is, right? Nine months is a long time. And you just kind of get used to waiting. You just get used to waiting. It just feels like, okay. You know, it just goes on and on and on. But when Allie was pregnant, she had this little app on her phone that tracked Knox's development in the womb. And it always related his size to the size of a vegetable or a fruit. And so about once a week, Allie would come into the living room and she would say, Knox is a grape today. Or Knox is a kumquat today, which wasn't very helpful because I don't even know what that is. Or Knox is a watermelon today and he better come soon, right? Like that was it. It was these updates every week saying, he's coming, he's coming. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. And the Bible's kind of like that. <laughs> we see in Genesis 3 that humans rebel. And in the Old Testament, it just tells you if you're looking for it, you see it's saying the kingdom's getting closer. The kingdom's getting closer. The kingdom is getting closer. And then you get to the New Testament, and this guy shows up <laughs> named Jesus. And what does he say? The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. The king has arrived and he's bringing his kingdom. The CEO has come to get his Chick-fil-A back, right? He's back, okay? The king is here. In Mark's gospel, Jesus begins his ministry by saying this in Mark 1.15. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is a summary of what Jesus came to preach, that God is the true king of the world, and his kingdom has now entered the world through Jesus. And the kingdom of God is everywhere in the life and teaching of Jesus. He speaks of it more than 120 times across all four gospels. He speaks of it 31 times alone in Luke's gospel. So if you're starting to think, this comes up a lot, yeah, it's going to keep coming up, okay? He's going to talk about it a lot in this book of Luke that we're working through. But now notice, now notice in this verse in Mark that I just read, he says that the kingdom of God is at hand, and he calls this the gospel. And we know that word, right? We say that word a lot. That word kind of tends to come up in our Sunday gatherings, the gospel. Now, what is it? What's it mean? Well, in, in Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was written in, the word for gospel is euangelion, euangelion. Now, that should sound a little familiar, We've taken that word and we have made it into English and we've made it evangelicals and evangelize, right? So that's the word, gospel, euangelion. And here's what it means. The, it's E-U at the beginning, you, and that means good. And then angelion means announcement. So the gospel, the euangelion, is a good announcement. It's good news. And in the Roman world, this word euangelion was used often. It was used often before the Bible was written, and it was most often used in the context of a royal announcement. So if a new Caesar in Rome took the throne or or became Caesar, 
the messengers would take out the euangelion and they would go from town to town and they would bring the good news that a new Caesar is here. A new Caesar has taken the throne. They would go and they would announce this. So here's what you have to see. Here's what you have to see to really understand what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus and his disciples proclaim the good news of the kingdom, they call it the euangelion of the kingdom, that is a bold statement. That is a bold statement, especially when you're spreading it in the Roman Empire. Because what's Jesus saying? We don't see this 2,000 years later, but everyone who heard it and everyone who read it would know. When he calls it the euangelion of the kingdom, he's making a statement. Caesar doesn't run the show. I run the show. That's the statement. That's the statement. Caesar doesn't run the show. I run the show. This is a political statement, a bold political statement. Now let's take a time out for a second, okay? And let's try to apply that to our day, okay? Politics are kind of a big deal, right? Especially this month, okay? We're thinking about politics a lot. Let's think about that. What's the implications for us in America 2,000 years later? Well, just think about this election cycle we just went through. What's the big question of our politics? What's the big question of American politics? Who is running the show, right? Who is running the show? Who has the White House? Who has the House and Senate? Who has the Supreme Court, right? That's it. That's the question. Who is running the show? Is it the Republicans or the Democrats, the conservatives or the progressives? Who is running the show? Well, Jesus, here, we take this and we apply it to us, and if we take the whole Bible and the message of it and apply it to us, Jesus would say, well, really, I'm the one running the show, <laughs> okay? It's not the Republicans, it's not the Democrats, I'm the one who's running the show, no matter what. It's me, I'm running the show. It wasn't Caesar, it's not the Republicans, it's not the Democrats, it's me. I am running the show. Now, do politics matter? Absolutely, right? The Bible makes that clear as well. Our government has very real authority that has been given to them by God. But as Christians, we can participate in politics knowing that our ultimate hope lies in another kingdom. It lies in another kingdom. And that should give us a graciousness, a confidence, and a humility that we don't see much of currently in our day, right? It should give us a humility that we don't currently see much of. And so that's one implication of this message that Jesus and his disciples spread. Let's talk about a few others. First of all, we see in our passage that this message is good news for the future. It's good news for the future. In verse 9, Jesus tells the messengers that when they're received by a town, they should heal the sick and then announce the message of the kingdom. Now, the sick getting healed is obviously good news for the sick, right? Like that's good news right now for the sick if they get healed. But we also need to see that this is good news for the future. It's pointing to a future hope because here's the thing we must remember. God's kingdom has broken into the world through Jesus coming the first time. When we read about that in the gospel, we see God breaking into the world, Jesus breaking into the world and bringing his kingdom. And that is why Jesus announced that the kingdom is near. But we're also told that the kingdom has not yet been fully realized. It hasn't even to this day, the kingdom has not yet been fully realized because the Bible tells us that Jesus will come back again. He will come back again and bring the kingdom fully. And as Christians, we look forward to that day. So why, why does he heal the sick? Why does he have the 72 go out and heal the sick? Well, first of all, we have to say this. Jesus 
heals the sick because he has compassion for them. He has compassion on them. One Puritan author described Jesus as love covered in flesh. He's love covered in flesh. Jesus is the most loving and compassionate person to ever live. And so he heals out of his compassion. When he heals, he heals out of his love. He heals out of his compassion. But there's another reason. These miraculous healings that we see in the gospel, these miraculous healings that we see the disciples go out and do here, they're giving us a foretaste of the resurrection to come. They're giving us a foretaste of the resurrection to come. In the gospel, Jesus heals the sick, gives the blind sight, cleanses the lepers, and makes the lame walk. And this is pointing to the fact that one day, Jesus' kingdom will come in full, and he will restore all things. Jesus will rule the world with perfect justice and perfect righteousness, and sin will be no more, and suffering will be no more. Isn't that good news, right? Isn't that good news? God will wipe every tear from our eyes, and Christians will spend eternity on a renewed earth with the one that they love the most. That's good news, right? That's good news. And that's what he's announcing here. When he goes and he heals, it's good news right then. But it's showing good news for the future when all things will be made new. That's one implication. This, this, this news, this, the kingdom coming should make us look forward to that day. It should make us look forward to that day. Drive that truth that that's coming down deep into your soul. So when suffering comes, you can look forward to that, right? You can look forward to that. But we also learn we also learn that this message is good news that doesn't just stay with us. It doesn't just stay with us. It's good news to be spread. It's good news to be spread. In the ancient world, as I said earlier, the messengers would get the euangelion and they would run out proclaiming a new king, right? We have a new king. And Jesus has given us that same role. We go and we tell people the kingdom is coming. The kingdom has come. It is near. We do the same for Jesus. Now, back in September, Pastor Joe taught on a very similar passage to the one that we have today. You may remember it, and it may sound, it sounds really familiar. Jesus sends out the 12, not the 72, and he gives a lot of the same instructions through that. So he tells, he sends them out, and he sends them on a very similar mission. And here's the thing. If you only read chapter 9, you may think that only those called the full-time ministry in the church are the messengers. But then you get to chapter 10 and you see, nope, that's not it. He's sending everyone, right? He's sending out, he appoints 72 and he sends them out. And that is what God does with every one of his followers. I've heard it said that God is like a spiritual tornado. He brings you in and then he sends you out to be a blessing to others. And he does that with every single follower. And I think there's an important reason for this. There's an important reason that every single believer has a role in the kingdom. Because here's the thing. God used amazing brilliance to make each and every one of us unique. Amazing brilliance to make each and every one of us unique. And that means that we all have a specific part to play. We all have a specific part to play in the kingdom. Tim Keller says it this way. There are some needs only you can see. Some hands only you can hold. And some people, only you can reach. We all have a part in this, right? Every believer has a part in this mission. Every believer has the message to take out. And so this passage shows us clearly that the mission is for everyone, but it also shows us that the good news must go to everyone. 
It must go out to everyone. It's for every believer, and it must go out to everyone. Now, how do we know that? Because it's kind of hidden in here. And let me just admit that this has been something I've been super excited about, about this week as a Bible nerd, figuring this out and finding this out in my reading and studying on this passage. So Jesus sending out the 72, that's not an accident, okay? That's not an accident. He didn't just pick a random number and appoint 72. Here's what you have to see. This is so cool, I think. In Genesis 10, Noah and his family get off the ark and it lists all the nations that would descend from them. Now, in Genesis 10, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament that a lot of people would have read in Jesus' day, there were 72 nations. Okay? In the Hebrew Old Testament, which I won't get into the weeds of this, but there are 70 nations. Okay? But if you look at your Bible, you'll see there on verse 1, there's probably a note at the bottom that says, some manuscripts say that Jesus sent out 70 disciples. Okay? Here's the thing. It doesn't matter, okay? It doesn't matter whether he sent out 72 or 70. Here's what we know for sure. He chose that number for a reason. He chose that number for a reason. He chose a disciple to send out to represent every nation listed in Genesis 10. Why? Because the message has to go to every nation. It goes to every nation. And that applied then and that applies now. And how awesome is that? reading this from 2,000 years ago and thinking that this church has a part in that, right? We have a part in that. With every, every short-term trip we go on, with sending people, with giving our, our money and giving resources, we have a part in that mission that Jesus put from the very beginning. Isn't that awesome? That's so cool to think about. He's sending them out for a reason. He's sending them out for a reason. You'll also notice, you probably notice, that there's a lot of specific instructions he gives to them as they're going out. And unfortunately, I can't get to every single one of them just for time's sake and, and tell you what it means. But there's basically this, this thread that kind of connects them all. For instance, in verse 4, he says this. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, and no sandals. Here's what he's telling. All the, all the instructions he gives, they kind of have this common theme. It's basically this. You can rely on me, Okay? Like, you can rely on me. As you go out, you don't need to take extra stuff because you can rely on me. I got you, right? I got you. That's what he's saying. I mean, think about this. In verse 3, he says this, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You don't go on that mission unless you really trust your shepherd, right? You don't go as a lamb in the midst of wolves unless you really trust your shepherd. And so that's what he's saying. It's a hard mission. I'm sending you out on it, but I got you right? I got you. And in Luke 22, Jesus will ask his disciples, he will say, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And what will his disciples say in unison? Nothing. We technically didn't have anything, but we lacked nothing. We lacked nothing. So here's what we need, kind of, or here's what we know, kind of connecting it back to what I said earlier. You have a mission as a follower of Jesus. You have a mission as a follower of Jesus. But God will give you everything that you truly need. You will never lack anything. You will never lack anything that you truly need to do what he's called you to do, right? That's good news. That's good news. Before we move on to our last point, let me throw in one more implication. One more implication. This message is bad news for Satan. It is bad news for Satan. In the next passage in Luke, so Pastor Sam will get here next week, the disciples will come back and they'll say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. 
So the coming of the kingdom means the ultimate defeat of the rulers of the kingdom of darkness. But you'll have to wait till next week for that. So just know that. It's the ultimate defeat of Satan, but we'll, we'll talk about that next week. All right, so in summary, in summary, the coming of the kingdom of God is good news. It's good news. Well, let me add a caveat. And it's a caveat that the passage actually gives us. It's good news if you're on the side of the king. The coming of the kingdom is good news, but it's good news only if you're on the side of the king. The message can be good news, but it can also be a warning. Jesus sends out his disciples with good news, but we're told that there are many who aren't going to receive it, that don't receive it. And look at verses 10 and 11 with me. It says this, Jesus Jesus tells them, he says, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. You see, in verse 9, in verse 11, the message is the same. In verse 9, it says, the kingdom of God has come near. In verse 11, it's the same message, but in a different tone. Basically, it's saying, hey, you can reject it. You can reject it, but just know this. The kingdom's coming anyway, okay? It is coming. The kingdom is coming. And in our passage, Jesus specifically calls out three towns that have rejected him. Let's read that. It's in verse 13 through 15. 13 through 15, it says this. This is Jesus talking. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. What's happening? That's, that's strong, right? That's strong. What's happening here? What's happening here? Jesus is pointing out these three towns where he did a lot of his ministry. He spent a lot of time there. He preached a lot there. And he did a lot of miracles He clearly made his identity known. To make it even worse, to add some extra weight to this, just in Luke chapter 9, so right before this, we are told that it's in Bethsaida where the feeding of the 5,000 happened, right? And that's just the men. So we're thinking 20,000 people probably miraculously being fed by Jesus. Yet many reject him. Many reject him. So here's what this shows us. Here's what this shows us. For some people... No amount of proof, no amount of reasoning, and no amount of miracles be enough for them to follow Jesus. And here's the thing. I mean, just a little bit about me. One of my passions in ministry is to show that faith in Jesus and faith in the Bible is sound and it's rational, okay? The Bible invites us to think about it, okay, and use logic and think about it. And the Bible and Christianity, it's logical. We can think about it, and it's true. It's true. And here's the thing, if you're here today or you're watching today, and if you think about it, there's some doubts, right? You're doubting Jesus, you're doubting the Bible, you're doubting Christianity. Let me just say this, I've been there, okay? I've been there. And here's what I found out. Jesus isn't afraid of your questions. He's not, okay? Jesus isn't afraid of your questions. And I'll speak for everyone else here I don't think this church is afraid of your questions, okay? That's okay, 
okay? It's okay to ask those questions. I truly believe that the strongest faith is the one, or strongest faith is the one that has wrestled through the doubts. The strongest faith is the one that has wrestled through the doubts. So keep wrestling, okay? Keep wrestling. But here's what we also see in this passage. For some pent people, for many people, I would even say, no amount of proof will be enough. For these three towns, Jesus in the flesh doing miracles wasn't enough, okay? It will never be enough. Now, why is that? What kept Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum from following Jesus? Let's tie it back. I think it all goes back to that initial question. Who is running the show? Who is running the show? Because here's the thing. A guy who comes into your town doing miracles, healing people, feeding you, pretty cool, right? (laughs) A guy who comes in doing all that and then is going to defeat the Romans so you don't have an enemy anymore, pretty cool. But a guy who comes in doing all that and then says, hey, I'm the king. And it's not actually about defeating the Romans. I'm here to be the king of your life. You got to lay down, you got to bend the knee and lay down your life and surrender to me. That's not cool, (laughs) okay? That is not cool when someone comes in doing that. Because as we said earlier, humans love to build kingdoms of their own. We love to build kingdoms of their own. And because many don't want to be a part of God's kingdom. Because here's the thing. If Jesus is the king of your life, you can't be, okay? If Jesus is the king of your life, you can't be. Because only one kingdom can reign supreme. So that's why. That's why you can see all the proof. You can see Jesus in the flesh doing miracles and still walk away. Because you want to be the king of your own life. You want to be the king of your own life. Here's the thing. Everyone wants the benefits of the kingdom, but many don't want the king. We want the kingdom, but we don't want the king. We want to be the king of our own life. And look, let me, let me, let me stop here and just say this, just to this room, okay? It's easy to hear a challenge like that and think, well, that, ain't, that doesn't matter to me, right? That doesn't matter to me. You can think about all the people you got to go tell this to, right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Many of us, Assume that we're part of God's kingdom just because you're here today or just because you're watching today and just because you can list out all the things that you've done for God in your life. Just because you can think of all the money you gave last week, right? But think about that. Just think with me for a second. Give me a second. Just think about this. Charles Spurgeon used to tell this story. He used to tell this story of this this ancient kingdom. And in this kingdom, there was this king that was loved by everyone. Everyone adored him. Well, one day, the king was sitting on his throne and this carrot farmer walked in, holding a four-foot-long carrot. <laughs> and so he walks up to the, to the king and he says, King, I've been doing this my whole life, and this is the largest carrot that I have ever grown. <laughs> and when I got this out of the ground, here's the only thing I could think. This isn't a carrot for me. It's not a carrot for my family. This is a carrot for a king. I want you to have it. I want you to have it. And the king was touched. He was so touched by this gift. And he said, he just sat there and he thought for a second. He said, where do you live? Where's your farm? And the guy told him and he said, okay, I own all the land around around your farm. It's yours now. 
And in that moment, the carrot farmer's farm quadrupled in size. Well, as this whole thing was going on, there was another guy in the corner of the room who heard everything. And he's a smart guy, right? And so he's thinking, if the king will give that for a stupid present like a carrot, what would he give for a real gift? And so the next day, this guy walks in with a black stallion. And he walks up to the king and he walks up to his throne carrying or, or leading in his horse. And he stands in front of him and he says, King, you are such an amazing leader. You are awesome. Everybody loves you. And because of that, I just want to give you my best horse. It's for you. This is a horse for a king. And there was this really awkward silence, okay? Because the king knew what was going on. And he sat there and he thought, and he thought, and he thought, and he thought. And then he looked at this guy and he said this. He said, yesterday, the carrot farmer gave the carrot to me. You're giving this horse to yourself. It is possible, that's scary, because it's possible to do things for God and to do things for his kingdom that are only meant to build up your own. It's possible to do things for God and his kingdom that are only truly to build up your own kingdom. To be honest with you, I have to tell myself this story every time I preach a sermon. <laughs> I have to ask myself, is this a carrot or a stallion? Because it's so easy to do this for my own glory, to do this for my own kingdom. So here, let me ask you, let me ask you, is your life, even though you're here today, even though you may be a member of this church, even though you've done a lot for God, is your life about your kingdom or his kingdom? Who's running the show? Ask yourself that. Who is running the show of your life? Is it you or is it him? Is it you or is it Jesus? And let me close with some really good news, okay? Let me close with some really good news. Here in our passage, Jesus gives these towns a warning. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. It's a warning. He tells them, repent, repent. There's still time. Wave the white flag of surrender. Follow me. Bend a knee. Come to my kingdom. Be a part of my kingdom. And he's not only saying that to them, he's saying that to us. That offer's still open, right? Be a part of my kingdom. Bend the knee to me as king. Because here's the thing, he made a way for us to be a part of his kingdom, to go from rebel to kingdom citizen. Because you see, Jesus didn't bring his kingdom like other kings do. He didn't bring it through force. Jesus' enthronement as king comes through a much different way. Jesus is enthroned as king when some Roman soldiers tear him to shreds. And they put a robe on him that a king would wear. And they take a crown of thorns and they jam it into his skull. And they point at him and they laugh and they call him king. That's when Jesus was enthroned as king. And then they exalt him up. They exalt him up as king, but they don't exalt him onto a throne. Instead, they nail him to a criminal's cross. And he is raised up. 
And the God of the universe, the king of the universe, the one who runs the show, what does he do? Let's them do it. He lets them do it. He lets them kill him. But three days later, but three days later, he rises again victoriously. The king is victorious, right? The king is victorious. And here's the good news. Even if up to this point, even up to this point, you have been living all about, it's all been about your kingdom, your kingdom. That can change today. You can be a part of his kingdom. And here's the amazing thing. You can be a part of his kingdom through the blood of the king himself. The king himself died, shed his blood so that you can be a part of his kingdom. And so I beg you this morning to surrender to him. Surrender to him. Lay down your arms, wave the white flag, and make him the king of your life. Let me pray. Dear Lord, just thank you. Thank you for being a good king. Thank you that though you are the king of the universe, though we are rebels, we try to do things our own way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for making a way. For making a way to be a part of your kingdom. And so I pray for those of us in here who are followers of you, that we will have boldness to be your messengers, to tell people about you, to take it to the nations, to say that our God reigns and invite them to be a part of this kingdom. If any of us, if, if any of us in here have just been doing things for our own kingdom, it's made, we've made it all about us. Even, even church has been all about us. The things that we quote-unquote do for you has been all about us. I pray that today, knees will be bent to you as king. We will recognize King Jesus as the true king of the universe and be a part of his kingdom. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray.